I'm sure that many of you have been to AA meetings. You'll understand my opening sentence. Uh, my name is Bobby, and I'm a spender. You're supposed to say, hello, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm surrounded some by some of my fellow addicts, I'm sure. Uh, my wife, Susan, down here is a saver. Anybody see a problem going to happen here? Uh, we, we've raised two uh, young men now. Uh, Andrew is a spender. He's like his dad. Jack is a saver, like his mother. Their personalities are just clearly distinct on this. And uh, uh, you can give Jack a gift, uh, 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 a monetary gift. Say, here's 100 bucks, you know, for your birthday or whatever. You can ask him a month later, what did you buy? He's like, oh, no, I've still got that 100 That's the way he is. You give Andrew $100 for his birthday, he'll spend 200 and call you back later and ask for another 100 that's the way he is. Uh, and he gets that from his dad. I don't know if I passed it through the genes or through modeling behavior. I'm not sure. But I can tell you that is definitely the way we are wired. I want you to think about yourself for a minute. Spender or saver? Your spouse. Spender or saver? I see an optimizer back there. It's not one of the choices. Uh, saver. You're a saver. Okay, uh, this morning I want to talk about money. Uh, you know, this is a, I don't know why churches have a phobia about this. I saw a church in the community the other day, I was driving home, and their billboard out in front of their church said, we do not want your money. I wanted to pull over and say, Cornerstone, 7955 North Beach, mail your checks there. Uh, we'll be glad to use your money uh, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. You realize it just takes money to do missions. It just takes the money to do what we're trying to do for the Lord. It's never been different. Most of the parables are about money. Jesus talked about more money than, uh, or wealth or possessions, however you want to look at it. Assets, let's use that word, more than any other thing in his parables because that's what consumes our lives. We're going to go to work in the morning because of this issue. We're trying to educate our kids so that they can get a good, exactly, and uh, live a comfortable life and have stuff. Uh, this is one of the focal points of our life. So it's a focal point of scripture this morning. I'm going to make it a focal point of our time together. Uh, financial stress. Let me just leave finances for a minute as a subject and go to marital counseling for a minute as a subject. Uh, financial stress is constantly at the top of the list when it comes to issues that affect marriages. Financial stress is always at one or two on that list of issues that are affecting people's marriages. Uh, it would not take you but one Google search, as it did me, to go through the headlines, and you'll just see headline after headline after headline after article after book after blog after podcast that are all talking about the same thing, the stress that is placed on marriages because of finances. Maybe one's a spender and one's a saver, or maybe because of uh, sickness you got into financial stress, or 
maybe because of economic downturn and layoffs, you got into financial stress, or maybe just because of bad money management, you got into financial stress. There's a lot of ways to get there. Let's don't judge each other on how we got there this morning. There's a lot of ways to get into uh, financial stress. Uh, one article in Parenting Magazine, I'm going to read you a paragraph. Uh, it's how to argue less about money and marriage. Here, it goes like this. My husband and I would have the perfect marriage if there were no such thing as money. On most issues, David and I are on the same page. But when it comes to cash, we're reading from completely different books. I'm a saver who balances my checkbook to the penny. He's a spender who knows only about how much money he's got in the bank. You say, can you afford it? I know about what's in there. I bet Susan can tell you to the third decimal point what's in there. Uh, it goes like this. Our money issues got worse after we became parents. The night after, That's true for most people, by the way. Uh, the night after our now six-year-old daughter was born, Lily was born, it wasn't just the pain of delivering the, the baby that kept me up. I tossed and turned worrying about the cost of child care, worrying about the cost of college, worrying about the cost of everything associated with the child. Later on, I'd get mad at David when he impulsively bought Lily books or gifts. In turn, he resented that I would not let him spoil our child. I even get annoyed when he did nice things for me. He'd hire a sitter so we could go out to dinner. Doesn't he realize the price tag of such a treat on our budget? Wasn't long before money squabbles became a regular part of our daily routine. I know now that our struggle to find common financial ground was far from unique. Arguing over money is the number one case of divorce. That's an article from Parenting Magazine. Now, it always holds those top slots for sure. So I guess this morning, the way to find common ground is just for us all to acknowledge that it is a reality. Uh, if you're at a place uh, uh, that you have intense conversations with those you love over money, just leave it gracefully worded, okay? Tense conversations with people you love over money. If you're sitting here this morning hearing these words and you're like, no, we don't, then praise God for you. Maybe you found a way to already apply the principles that I'm going to talk about this morning that you've solved this uh, point of contention which exists in most marriages. Surprisingly enough, or not surprisingly, Nehemiah chapter 5 becomes a framework to talk about uh, a financial uh, uh, financial planning is not really the right word, but principles of finance. Nehemiah chapter number 5, the people get into financial distress. It's what I'm going to show you. And then it goes all the way into chapter 6 where Nehemiah shows them the steps we're going to take to resolve the issues that we're facing in our, our society. Now, I can't tell all the stories I've told. You understand where we are in the story. We're at the last part of the Old Testament. Now, we're telling the last story of the Old Testament. There's one other guy that's going to show up here in a week or two named Malachi. He's the last prophetic voice before Jesus is going to show up in the New Testament. But we're telling the last story of the Old Testament. What I want to say to you is what you're dealing with maybe with financial stress in your life, it may not be that much different than what they're dealing with, even though this is an ancient story. So let's look at the text. 
Let me show you what they were dealing with very quickly uh, in Nehemiah chapter number 5. Let's find our place in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. I'll tell you before you read, Father, that the great outcry and the strife and the point of contention is a division over money. There is a division and strife over money. And uh, I want you to think about what's been happening in our story. Nehemiah says, we're going to build a wall. Let me ask you, who's going to build the wall? Which people? The blue-collar workers, the bricklayers are going to build the wall? No, everybody's going to build the wall. Uh, The rulers, the priests, uh, is it a boys-only operation? No, we saw the man with his daughters building on the wall. Everybody's going to start at their house, and we're going to build together until this wall is complete. Now, if you're building the wall all day long, who's making perfume? (laughs) The answer is nobody. If you're the watchmaker and you're building the wall all day long, who's building the watches? Nobody. If you're the shopkeeper and you're building the wall all day, who's keeping the shop? Uh, Nobody. Now, do you see how this is going to cause some economic stress? Now, you'll learn in a week or so that, you know, about 52 days, a couple of months, they get this wall built. Is there anybody in here who could take off two months of their salary and not feel the financial stress? Are we that well healed at Cornerstone that we have such reserves that you can live for two months and maintain your lifestyle and your mortgage and your car pay with no income? Now, Now, you see the issue, don't you? So Nehemiah has told them, this is God's mission. Everybody rally yourselves and let's go build the wall. Well, while we're wall building, there's nobody putting money in the bank. And they get into a situation where some people do have reserves. They're wealthy landowners. Most people do not. And uh, uh, you begin to have a division in society because there's strife and division over who's got money and who doesn't have money. And we're all building the wall But now we've got ourselves into a financial mess. There was a shortage of basic human needs because of this. Now we call this, in your context, recession or depression, economic downturn. And uh, you've lived through one. You're living through high interest rate period now. Saw some credit cards last week hit 19 uh, point something percent. Mortgages are going up. Obviously, fuel's going up. Obviously, you've seen the results of the election now. There's not much relief coming. So you're faced with living in a recession where you know things are going to be, uh, resources are going to be strained, Nehemiah 5.2. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. We're going to have to get our hands on some food. Well, get it. Well, with what? They were deeply in debt, verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, grain. We are mortgaging our vineyards, grapes, wine, juice, raisins. We are mortgaging our homes to get grain during the famine. So the land is not producing. They're newly reinstated in the land. They're trying to put civilization and society back together and worship of God back together. They've rallied as one family to build the wall, but they are hurting financially. They are struggling to put food on the table. And because of that, they are living on borrowed money. 
verse number four. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. They're borrowing money to pay their taxes. Anybody see how this could be a problem? I just want to be sure you're with me this morning. When your tax bill comes due in April, if you've got to go get a bank loan to pay your tax bill, things are going to get really upside down in a hurry. This is the situation they're in. You may take it one step gloomier for you. Israel had a system in the old days under the law of Moses where if you had debt so big you couldn't pay them, you could sell your children as slaves. Read with me now verse number 5. The, the financial crisis got so bad that the people who are God's people building the wall are having to sell their children as slaves in order for their children to be fed and in order for the parents to be fed. Verse 5, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards now belong to others. We've sold our lands. We're having to auction off our kids in order for people to survive. Now, Hopefully you understand without me elaborating anymore. This is a bleak situation they've got themselves into. They've come back over a period of a hundred years in three waves of migration to a destroyed country. And they have worked in three waves under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to put a country back together. You say, well, I can't believe it's taken so long. You ever tried to put a country together? You ever tried to build a country this is no small task here. And they've got rubble and blown up cities and they're trying to put it back together and they're trying to reinstitute law and order. And the big thing they're trying to do is reinstitute the worship of God and be God's image bearers, be God's people in a pagan world. And as they're trying to do what I think is very noble, very uh, honorable, to advance God's mission... They got into financial stress. Now, I just want to say this. If you're in financial stress, it doesn't mean that you don't love God. Doesn't mean that you're not God's people. Doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Doesn't mean that you're, you're wicked and your priorities are all, all wacky. That doesn't mean that. Good people can get into financial trouble, even people who have a heart for God, if they're not employing correct financial principles. Let's take a quick health a financial assessment this morning of your financial health. Let me just ask a few random questions to you and you think about them as we go through. Do you charge daily expenditures because of lack of available funds? Are you floating daily expenditures on credit? Do you put off paying your bill this month that's due this month until next month, maybe just only making minimums all the time because there's not enough there to deal with what you've charged up? Are there, at times, are there times in your life where you're unaware of how much money you owe? Do you guys know how much debt you actually owe? And are y'all talking about that as a family? Do you, do you have creditors calling about past due bills? Do you and your spouse argue over money? Do you ever entertain ideas about being dishonest in some area of your financial dealings because you're so far behind? 
Now, I hope one of you wins the Powerball when they get up to a billion dollars. I had a church member call and text me and say, if I win it, 50% is going to Jesus. I'm like, I hope you win it. Uh, We will spend it. Trust me. We will put it to work for for, for the kingdom. But don't entertain ideas of get rich quick. That's not going to be your solution, okay? Do you find it difficult to give generously in worship each Sunday? Now, those are some assessment questions that will help you kind of get your mind around, are we healthy financially or unhealthy? I think the one thing we could all agree on this morning, that it's really hard to focus on doing God's mission for your life if you're drowning in debt. If you're worried about how you're going to eat and how you're going to survive, it's very hard to focus on, we need to be making disciples, right? It's very hard to focus on missions and disciples and church planting and leading people to Christ and youth camps and all that we need to do. If you're saying, yeah, but I can't take care of my own family, we are so strapped by debt, I can't think forward missionally. And I want you to know, a big group of Christians uh, in our modern uh, society are living that style of life. Now, Nehemiah has some very practical solutions, and I I want to say this, I've I've been very critical of the Old Testament leaders, you know, for 40-something weeks here. Um, they're a mixture of good and bad. They're not role models to follow in every area of their life. Nehemiah's a great leader until he's a bad leader, okay? But he's got some really, he's very good at pulling the people together for the mission. He does things in record time that you think would not even be doable. He's a politician extraordinaire at being able to get different people with different points of view to work together. And that is no small task. You try to lead a group at your work or somewhere or in our community, getting people to work together who have divergent viewpoints is an incredibly difficult task. And Nehemiah does a great job by sorting this problem out. And one of Nehemiah's appeals to them is, aren't you all one blood? I mean, aren't you all God's people here? I mean, aren't you all Jews here? Aren't you all the people of God? Start treating each other like a family again. And you know what, I, I, would, I would love to just go on a tangent about this, but when Jesus launched the New Testament church and it was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, if you start reading the book of Acts going forward, which we will do some of that next year, if you start reading the book of Acts going forward, that was the very attitude that permeated the, the New Testament church. They looked at each other as brother and sister. They looked at each other as family. If somebody had a need, they met it. If somebody was struggling, they helped them. If, if you were having a good month, you might give a little more. If you were having a bad month, somebody, you would give a little less. But everything worked out because they were treating each other with that uh, sense of family, that sense of unity that uh, was pervasive in the early New Testament church. Watch Nehemiah's appeal here. I'm going to read you a lengthy passage. Nehemiah 5. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. Here's what I told them. You are charging your own people interest. Now you as capitalist Americans are thinking like, yeah, you go, good business principle. But not during the middle of a famine when people are having to sell their children as slaves. You see the difference? You're hurting your own people. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Verse 8, and I said, as far as possible, we have uh, bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people 
only for them to be sold back to us. Let me summarize this. You're mad at the Gentiles because they enslaved you. You're doing it to your own people now. You're doing it to your own people. Why are you doing this to your own people? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Verse 9. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Now here's one of Nehemiah's big government initiatives. He's like, me and my brothers, he's the governor, we're also selling uh, grain to people. We're also selling on credit. We're lending money, if you would. But let me and let you and let all of us agree during this difficult time, we're not charging any interest. That, that just can't be right now. We're going to get those who are without so far behind that we're going to create a whole slave class in our society if we, have to, if, if we in, indenture them, if we enslave them financially right now. We have the power to take advantage of them. Let us not do it. Do not take advantage of them in this way i'm not going to charge interest i want you not to charge interest i I think that's a a pretty good principle verse 11 give back to them immediately their fields so if you've repossessed because they put it up as collateral you you took possession of their assets i want to give back to them immediately their fields their vineyards their olive groves, their houses, and all the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, 1% of the grain, 1% of the new wine, and of the olive oil. We will give it back, they said. So Nehemiah's like, I want you to restore this. Now listen, this is a great leader. He's doing something, I mean, very generous, very liberal uh, politically, very magnanimous. And I'm saying all those as positive things. He is going to help rescue a society that's about to default. And he's saying to the haves, right now, you can't charge interest. And right now, if you've taken a family's land, how are they going to be able to work a crop to pay you back? You now own the land. Give them the land back. Let them work the debt off. And let's give them back a little 1% or so to, to live on of grain and oil and all of this. And they said, okay, we will give it back, verse 12. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and the officials take an oath. He's not going to take them at their word per se. He's going to make them swear an oath, okay? Let, let, let's solemnize this, okay? So I made them, I got the priests to come down, got the witnesses to come down. And I made them take an an oath to do what they had promised. Verse 13. I also, he did something symbolic. Now, I've talked to you about this before. Let me not belabor the point. But the Jews often do street theater to act out the message they're trying to speak. The prophets were famous for for shaving their heads or uh, being naked or for cooking their food over poo or doing all kinds of things. You guys don't know those stories? Gosh, I'll have to segue here in a few weeks and, and fascinate you with the stories of some more prophets then. They do all kinds of crazy things to act out the stories that God wants to communicate to his people. So one of the things that's about to happen right now is Nehemiah is going to do a little drama. And, and he's going to, uh, well, let me just read it for you. Verse number 13. I also 
shook out the folds of my robe, and I said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this the whole assembly said, Amen. Now, in case you're not a church person and you're wondering, what do these people always say amen for? It's just a word that means so be it. I agree. Now, you have to be careful about where you shout amen because sometimes the pastor says, you know, we, we, we are wretched sinners and you, amen, you know. Some people are going to hell, amen. You know, those are not the appropriate points to shout amen. You typically want to affirm something you agree with that's a positive statement, typically, okay? And amen just means, yeah, I agree. Uh, so be it. Let it be, uh, as you've said. So Nehemiah does a little theater. He, they, you know, they wear, they've got layers of garments on this cold Sunday morning. You may have come in with some layers, you know, you know an undershirt and a shirt and a jacket and a vest or whatever. And they had this big outer garment. And it's very big piece of fabric gathered up and tied with a belt. And you get crumbs and dust and all kinds of stuff down there in your cummerbund. And so uh, 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 Nehemiah uh, you know, takes his robe and he shakes it out like this. And just in my mind, I have this cartoonish picture of, you know, of, of, of mice and dust and birds and, you know, just stuff coming out of his robe, you know, as he shakes it. And uh, uh, a remote control that you lost in your car keys. And, you know, and, and he shakes his robe and so dust flies out. And he says, uh, this is a witness against all or a witness between us. If you do not keep your oath, may God shake you out of your wealth. Well, that's serious, isn't it? <laughs> that's serious. Uh, let this be a witness. If you don't do what you said you would do, may God shake you out of here. Well, that's serious but this is the way they did things they did a lot of dramatic acts like this all right now let's let's keep going this is i'm just setting the picture so you see what's happening here we haven't even got to the good stuff there are a lot of good people a lot of good people who love the lord who are struggling financially and financial struggles bring discouragement into our lives i have lived this i know this and i want you to know that you living perpetually discouraged is not god's plan for your your life or for his people he does not want you to be discouraged what i do understand is that satan's primary tool against god people is discouragement so therefore i'm concluding that financial bondage probably isn't god's will for your life but it may be a way for satan to keep you off the playing field for the mission of jesus does that seem fair and that's kind of what i'm deducing if our families are not healthy then our church will never be healthy I want your, church, your family to prosper financially. You say, well, why? You want all of our money? Not at all. I want your family to prosper financially because you can't live under perpetual financial strain. It will tear your marriage apart. It will tear you apart emotionally, psychologically, and ultimately physically. That is no way to live. You say, but this is where I'm stuck. Then we're going to turn it around. Start, start getting a positive attitude on it. You say, well, I'm in a mess. Okay, well, let's turn it around. You say, well, I've been trying with no success. Well, we're going to bring in help and turn it around. You say, are you sure that my situation can be fixed? All of your situations can be fixed. All of our situations can be fixed if we employ the right principles and turn it over to a God who absolutely owns everything. He can 100% turn around any situation. Do you believe that? I 100% believe that. 
And I want you to begin to work towards that this morning. The Bible has so much to say about money. Uh, and, and now I want to go back to an appeal I've been making to you. I've been laying the foundation for you for many months that Israel is a concept in the mind of God, that he would have a people that would be his holy people. They would reflect God to this world. They would be living image bearers of Almighty God. That would be Israel. That's God's concept. Now those, so he started a nation called Israel through Abraham. The problem is the nation didn't do what God wanted them to do. So a new covenant came along in which God said, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to send my king and he's going to get this mess fixed and he's going to make a new covenant and he's going to include the Gentiles, the whole world in that covenant. You are the new Israel. Anyone who believes on Jesus is the new Israel. Now, the reason I've been making that case to you is one, to, 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 the Bible won't make sense unless you understand that uh, those who compose the church in this era, those of you who believe on Jesus Christ and you make up what it means to be the New Testament church, you are the new Israel. You are spiritually Abraham's descendants. And when you have that understanding, it totally changes the way you read the Old Testament. It totally changes everything you know about the promises to Israel and the covenant with Israel. Let me recap some material for you. Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, do you belong to Christ? Then you are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's kids if you belong to Christ. And you are heirs, which means you stand to inherit. What? The promise. You're, you... Promises made to Abraham, promises made to Israel, you now are heirs of the promise. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of how many bodies? We are all one body. And sharers together of the promises, or the promise, in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and it may be guaranteed to all of abraham's offspring dash dash whatever follows modifies not only to abraham's offspring who are of the law not only dna jews biological dna jews not only them but also to those who have the faith of abraham do you have the faith of abraham well, then he is the father of us all. You are the new Israel and the promises made to Israel. You ought to start reading that Old Testament saying, that's me because I'm God's people. I am the new Israel. I am the church of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what do those promises look like? Well, let me read you some covenant promises. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 28. It was the covenant relationship which opens the door to all the blessings that God wants to pour out upon a human people like you. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands, I, is a covenant conversation that I give you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city, and you will be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your baskets and your kneading trough will be blessed. 
You will be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction and they will flee in seven directions. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is going to give you. The Lord your God will establish you as a holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, verse 10, then all the people on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, in the young of your livestock, in the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, and he will send rain on your land in season to bless all the works of your hands. You will lend to many nations and you will borrow from none. I'd love to claim that paragraph and say, Lord, everything I touch, I want you to turn it to blessing. I am your people. I am your covenant son. I have put my faith in your king. And God, today I claim the promises made to your people. Lord, let me be a producer at work, at church, whatever I put my hand to. In the business world, in the classroom, I want my students to be the smartest, most accelerated students. God, I, I want my clients to be the most blessed clients. God, the businesses that I serve, maybe they be the most blessed businesses that are prospering and buying equipment and buying furniture and buying forklifts and buying shelving and God may my you say I wish you'd preach Bible and leave this alone there's nothing more Bible than this you are God's people God wants to bless you richly if you will obey him and walk in covenant with him he will open the windows of heaven and bless his people you say well I don't feel blessed maybe it's on us We'll see, we'll see. Maybe we're just not managing things correctly. That's really what I want to get to because I know God wants to bless us. And I know we get sick, been there, done that. Surprised with about $10,000 of bills last month I didn't expect. I get it. I live the, just like you do. I get it. Maybe some of that's just on us and maybe some of it's random. But what we can do for God to bless us, we should do. If you knew there was a way that you could align yourself with God so that he could bless you the way he wants to bless you, would you be willing to do that? I think most of you would be willing to do that. Let me just give you a few priorities and principles this morning that will set your family up for financial freedom. First of all, the principle of priority. Now you see the problem. Let's keep moving forward. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be governor of the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years he was governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. I want you, this is subtle, so I want you to see what's happening here. This is the principle of priority. Nehemiah was appointed governor by the king, one of the most, the most powerful man on the earth, appointed Nehemiah to be governor over Judea. And with that appointment comes an open checkbook, a budget, comes authority and money, and it comes the right for Nehemiah, the governor, to place high taxes upon the people in order to fund his government. You guys understand taxes and funding government, right? 
Nehemiah has the right to tax God's people in order for his administration to operate under the authority of the king. But Nehemiah says in verse 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the food that was allotted to us for the governor. Let me read verse 15. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and the wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Now, Nehemiah's also one of the things you'll know about Nehemiah is he's fine with blowing his own horn. Okay. He's a very, it doesn't bother him to, to, to toot his own horn. So let him do it and don't be upset with him. But he makes a statement and it's a true statement. Out of reverence for God, I didn't tax the people. I didn't lord over them all of my authority. And I didn't uh, use every privilege that was given to me like the other governors and princes did. They took advantage of the people. But I have not taken advantage of the people because I believe that God put me in this position in the government and ordained that I should bless the people, not burden the people. Now listen carefully what I'm going to say. I'm not going to be too political, but I want to make a few statements. Government's ordained of God. It is God that set up government. And God set up government to bless the people, not to burden the people. And there's a beautiful principle here. Nehemiah says, I get that. Praise God for any political leader who gets that. He said, I get that, and I don't want to leverage every advantage I have in order to fleece uh, the, the sheep. This is why the American founders wanted a limited government in America. It's one of the reasons that I tend to be a conservative in my political ideology because conservatism champions uh, at least this goal of keeping the government smallish. And the government has to be kept smallish because if the government gets biggish, then it takes too much money out of your pocket-ish in order to fund that. And you get that. And, and Nehemiah says, I'm not going not gonna to do that. As governor, he says, I've got certain rights and I've got certain prerogatives, but I'm going to abdicate my rights and my prerogatives. I have the right to live in luxury. Let me just put it out there. He said, I'm the governor appointed by, by the king, the emperor of the world. I have the right to live in luxury but I'm going to abdicate my right to live in luxury because I want to see that stinking wall built. I want to see that temple built. I want to see us worshiping God and blowing trumpets from the walls and offering sacrifices to God and worshiping God. I want to see the mission accomplished more than I want to live in luxury. This is why I call this the principle of priority. He has a sense of priority that I want you to adopt. I want you to say I have the right as an American living in a middle class society to live in luxury. You do have the right. It is your portion under the sun. Solomon agrees with you. The word of God agrees with you. It is your right to live in luxury. You earn it. You live in that sort of society. But where does the mission of God come in your priority scheme? Do you have the right to live in luxury while the mission of God goes unfunded? That's the bigger question. And Nehemiah said, no. He said, I have the right to live in luxury, but, I, but I'm not going to use that right because I want to see the mission get done. I've never been more proud of our church than, than in those maybe 20 years ago when we started building this building. I'm looking around the room. Some of you were babies then. Macbeth, you were, you were really young in your 20s back then. 
when we were building this building and so many of our families wanted to buy that second house, move up from their starter home. And I just family after family said, listen, we're just going to wait another year on that because we want to give a special gift this year, you know, five, ten thousand. We want to give a very generous gift to the church above what we normally do. And we can wait on our luxury item for one more year because we see there's a pivotal moment in the history of our church coming right now. And it wasn't one family. It was scores of families. There were a lot of families that said, our car, I don't, it's just, we need an upgrade. We need a replacement. And family after family said, no, we're going to put that off a year. We'll just drive the jalopy one more year. And instead, we're going to take a little extra and we're going we're to do something because we're having a pivotal season in the mission of our church. Many of you now have come into a very blessed church that a lot of people sacrificed to build. You know, uh, as I keep telling you, we're, I don't want to make this totally applicable to next week, but we're about to dump 40000 into the foyer. Uh, we've got to raise that 40000 You know, the bathrooms haven't been upgraded in 20 years. I think it's time, okay? Uh, we've, we've got to do some things. Be willing to prioritize God's things right up there above your own, okay? And that's kind of the principle Nehemiah is operating with. Whether you, you, for us it would be giving your tithes and offerings or missions or building projects or paying salaries of some of our, our people or investing in gifts like this that are going around the world. Listen, that kind of prioritization is incredible. And it's beautiful when you do it uh, out, of a, out of a willing heart. Sometimes you have to have a sense of urgency about these things. Uh, you can't just kick the can down the road all the time. Uh, you might be able to wait a year for an upgrade. There may be some families we're going to minister to that their marriage won't even be existent in another year. The devil will have destroyed it. You might be able to make your car last one more year in order for you to give a little more to missions this year because some of the people we're trying to reach, the doors will be closed in some countries next year and we won't be able to get in. We've got to win them while we can get to them. We've seen this happen time after time in our missions program. Some people will go out into a Christless eternity before we can get to them. I constantly live with this burden of urgency. And the staff's always saying, slow down, don't do it all at once. And I just feel, I feel incredibly burdened to act while, strike while the iron's hot in, in many scenarios so that we can accomplish what God has put right in front of us. Let me give you the principle again, it's about priority. Jesus said in the New Testament, but seek first his kingdom about priority my kingdom first god says my righteousness first and then all these things all the things you need for life i will take care of that you get the priority right i asked you a minute ago would you be able if you knew you could align with god so he could bless you would you be willing to do it you all said yes here's the first one it's about priority are you willing to reprioritize your assets your finances what your life is really about when it comes to budgeting, budgeting begins with properly placed priorities. Let me give you the list. It's so simple. When you get ready to budget and plan your life, God first. Can we all agree on that? God holds first place in our lives. That means first day of the week. means we give a time for worship to God. It means we assemble together. means we get out of bed, shave our face, and put on our clothes, and come together and worship with God's people it's a priority in our lives. First day of the week, 
First thing we do on Sundays, we come and where you go watch football, go to the park, do all that later today. But is there anything in your life about priority that says on Sunday morning we're going to be together with God's people? Do you have to? No, you have some freedom, but don't you want to? Don't you want to say to God, I'm aligning my life with what you've asked me to do. I'm going to make that a priority, make worship a priority in my life. I'm going to make budgeting a priority in our budget where when Susan and I look at what we make and what we owe and what we're dealing with, that God is the first place. The mortgage is not the first consideration. God is the first consideration in our budget. You say, well, I can't afford to live that way. Then you can't afford to do what you're doing. Something is out of whack. That's my whole point. God first. Second place, savings. You're going to give to your savings. Does that surprise anybody? God first. You're going to pay your savings bill second or your investment account. We can talk about that. And then you're going to pay your bills third. That's the way your finances should be structured. You're going to say, God, I put you as the priority. Surely you don't think that Visa is more precious than your own family. Boy, I, I feel like I'm talking. Susan, can you just talk to me for a minute? Nobody else will. Surely we don't think that paying the Netflix charge is more important than our own family, right? And so we're going to pay God first, and then we're going to pay our own savings to our own family second. This is our children's inheritance. This is your and my retirement. This is our future life. We're gonna, we value us more than we value Visa, MasterCard, and Nordstrom Rack. And Kohl's and Marshall's and Target. I don't know them. I know my family, and I'd like to see my family survive. Now we're going to pay those people that are the third-party creditors, okay? Now that's the principle of priority. That was a struggle. That gobbled up all my preaching time. You guys are killing me. Can we agree? This morning as a church family that we're going to reprioritize how we plan our finances that God would have first. We'd take care of our family second through savings and investment. And if you need help with that, we'll show you. And then we're going to pay our bills. And you say, well, I can't do that. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Then start trying this week to get to that. And when you get to that formula where God has now come first, my family's come second, and now I can pay my bills. Now you've aligned yourself in the principle of priority that you say, God, see, I'm trying to do it in a way that would honor you. My time's almost gone. No, the principle of productivity, verse 16. Instead, he didn't, eat all, he didn't eat what he could have eaten. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. So the government cabinet was working on the wall. We were learning something now. And we did not acquire any land. So now notice that the, key, the, 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 the government official devoted himself to work on the wall. This is the principle of productivity. Y'all let me go really fast here. If your goal in life is to get enough money put away in your investment account so that you never have to work again, then you don't have a biblical goal. You were made to do something. I have pastored for 30 years, and I have pastored hundreds and hundreds of mature people who told me, as soon as I retire, I'm going to serve Jesus, and as soon as they retired, we buried all of them. I've, I've pastored scores of people who said, 
when I finally can retire, I'll be able to give the way I want to give. And then we bury and your kids divide it all up and they invest all of God's money in, in, in Bitcoin and junk bonds. Gone, just like that, overnight. All I want to say to you is this. All of us are going to work the rest of our lives. What you want to do is you want to pray God makes you strong and healthy and sharp-minded. Uh, some of you are getting close to retirement age. Good. Uh, Brother Rick just retired. If you think Rick's going to sit down and do nothing, you're crazy. You know, you just start dreaming up side gigs. That's all that retirement means to our people. You say, why? Because you're going to stay active. Uh, Mike Guevara is retired. He's down here every day of the week working all day long at the church. He's the most exhausted retired guy in the world. If, if retirement's sitting down, he's not sitting down. He's working like crazy for, for the Lord and for, for outcome. All I want to say is this. Get out of your head the idea. You, I, some of you are saying, well, I want to retire early. I do too. I think we all do. But let's understand what that means. Retire early doesn't mean sit in a chair and stare and watch the grass grow. It means I am not Letty and I talked about Letty. You got six years? Six years. She can retire. She's a young lady. And so I asked her this morning, I said, what are you going to do when you retire? You're going to go help Jeff? She said, heck no. I said, when you retire, you're going to substitute teacher as a sidekick? Heck no. I'm done with that. I said, well, great. You're going to have a lot of time to go on mission trips and do this kind of stuff then. Now, that sounds like retirement to me. Okay? Staying busy for the Lord or staying busy in your, in your next gig. Work is not a dirty word. We want to teach our children that. I, I meet a lot of people who want a position, but they don't really want to do any work. Okay? That just doesn't fly in God's economy. And let uh, uh, me make a couple of political statements. You, you cannot legislate the poor into financial freedom. It doesn't work. You can't legislate the poor into wealth by legislating the wealthy out of their wealth. If a man receives without working, then another man must work first without receiving. That type of system destroys the work ethic of a society. And so I want to say to you, the principle of priority and the principle of productivity. Productivity says, I'm always going to be doing something. Uh, I may change the somethings I'm doing. Listen, you may have several gigs going at once, but don't try to get out of work. God created us to produce. That's my point. So be a producer all of your life, no matter what you're doing. So let me ask you some assessment questions really quickly. Do you rank as one of the top producers at your workplace? God created you to produce. How are you doing? Now I'm looking out across the room and I see a top producer here and a top producer there. I see a top producer over here. I see a top producer over there. We have a lot of top producers in here, in their fields. Listen, praise God for that. That's biblical. Are you a producer? Are you a top producer in your field at work? I think you should be. I think you should strive to be someone that people are looking at on the job and saying, there's a, there's a young lady that's not afraid to work. There, there's a woman who's dedicated in the classroom. Her students are crushing it. Here's a, a gentleman who is excelling. He's our best sales producer. I think that's biblical, and I think that opens the door for the kingdom of God, honestly. Let me ask you a spiritual twist on this question. Where do you rank in producing disciples for Jesus Christ? Chris, I want you to be successful in the business world. I, I, I try to talk to you all about, you know, starting business, change your journey, you know, you know the conversations we have. 
but I want you, Chris, to be a top producer for the Lord Jesus Christ and making disciples as well. Not one or the other. See, all of the above. Okay? And I want you just to start thinking this way. What does God want me to be? A producer. Whether that's building roads and bridges and making the world a better place or uh, pouring knowledge into young minds or building airplanes or, or selling houses or helping people uh, manage their money. Be a top producer in your field. And also strive to be a top producer in your church on the mission of Jesus Christ. Have you ever fallen on your knees on a Sunday morning and just said, God, that right there, I want to be a producer. I want to make the world a better place, and I want to be a producer for your kingdom. I want to make disciples. Okay, I'm right at the mark now. Let me give you another one, the principle of integrity. It's this continuation of that verse, Nehemiah 5, 16, neither did we acquire any land. Now, let me just tell you what's involved with this. Nehemiah is flush with cash. He's got the king's checkbook. Nobody has money, but he's got money. Let me just ask you guys a question. You guys know what the real estate market looks like in this community right now, right? Just houses are constantly being flipped in this room. So you know, okay? You know if you put it on the market. Steve, are you in here? Heather, how many days does it take? One? One day, gone, just like that. They just put theirs up for sale. Listen, that's the market we're in, okay? So you guys knowing what you know about the market, if you knew people were in financial distress in this community because of the recession, and you had $50 million of cash to spend, you'd own North Fort Worth. It'd be what we call a fire sale. You'd be going to stressed, financially stressed families, and you'd be saying, here's my offer, here's my offer, here's my offer, here's my offer. And you'd be writing checks in cash you, you, to buy houses, and you'd be snapping them up like that. Look what Nehemiah said. Last line. Neither did we acquire any land. That is the principle of integrity. Where he says, I see my fellow citizens are in such distress. I'm not here to take advantage of you. I'm the king's appointed governor. I'm not going to snap up your land and buy it out from under you. I know I could get it for a song. I will not do that to you. And here's what I want to say to you. Avoid any get-rich-quick schemes that you're, you're, you're presented with. If you're involved in questionable financial dealings, undo that this week. If you're invested in pyramid schemes, and if you think your future is a pyramid scheme, and somebody presented something to you that looked like a legitimate job, and now you realize it's a pyramid scheme, switch jobs this week. Get out of that. Get out of any unethical, questionable financial dealings that you may be tempted to get involved in, and it may take time to get out of them, okay? Get out of them and start investing your, your assets and your wealth with principles of integrity. We have multiple financial planners here in the church. We have multiple investment professionals here in the church. Everyone that I disciple, I teach them how to open a stock trading account, if they're willing, and I sit down with them and show them how to trade on the market. Every spiritual disciple I make here, I try to convince them to sit down with me and let me show you how to handle your money. Because the two are connected together. You'll never be able to be free on the mission of God if you're constantly drowning in debt financially. And I think it's the biggest mistake the previous generation to me made 
is they didn't teach anybody how to handle money. Did your parents ever sit down with you, Susan, and say, now here's what options trading looks like? Now, here, now here's how you can play the market. Listen, now you pay God and you pay your... Nobody taught us anything when it came to dealing with money. And so we're, we started as a train wreck. She may say we still are. She's the saver. Um, I'm not trying to get your money. I'm trying to help your generation be better than mine. Jeremy, you guys will be much better than we are at managing the money. But you watch us behind the doors up there every week of your life. Uh, I'm hollering out there, Erica, the stock market's down. Bye, 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 bye. Do we have any cash on hand? And she's buying. Uh, you say, Erica's trading stocks for the church. You better know it. You better know it. We're not just sticking any extra money under the mattress. That violates the principles of the New Testament where Jesus said, you better make that money work. It's working. It's working. I want this in your family as well. I want you to be blessed. All right, now it's 12.05. I'm sorry. What is that? Can you deal with three, maybe three verses? Here we go. Nehemiah 5.17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials sat at my table, as well as those who came from surrounding nations. This is the principle of generosity. It frustrates me when God's people just won't be generous. Please be generous. And the problem is you can't be generous if you've lived from pillar to post, pension pennies all your life. I grew up so, mom, close your ears. I grew up so poor. People giving me hand-me-down hand clothes. The byproduct is I'm a clothesaholic right now. You say, why? Because all I ever wore were your hand-me-downs. I never had decent clothes. I was wearing somebody else's shoes, somebody else's cowboy boots that didn't fit in junior high. Uh, people were bringing groceries to our house. We were poor. I mean, poor. Now that I look back, I didn't know how poor we were at the time, but we were poor. And it affects you mentally. You're like, we, we never could eat out. Uh, I live at Chick-fil-A now. Because I think it's the coolest thing in the world for us to just walk in and there it is. I never had that growing up. Never, never could eat out. We didn't have any money. Uh, what I'm saying is, you can't be generous if you're poor like that. But when God begins to bless you and you can be generous, that is a feeling like none other. I mean, you talk about joy in your life. Joy is not people giving you gifts. Joy is gift giving. Certainly as we get to Christmas, those of you who have realized this are really excited about the upcoming year because you realize this is a time of joy for you. You get to give gifts to people. Now, the New Testament is filled with this, and here's what Nehemiah basically says. 150 Jews, pull that verse up again, verse 17, 150 Jews sat at my table every night. Now, I just want to ask you some practical questions. How much food do you think that takes? How would you like to prepare for 150 people every night? That's a lot of groceries, folks. Susan and I go to Kroger right now, walk out with two little bags like this, it'll be $100. And I'm just saying, Nehemiah, he's making a point now, and his point is this. I have 150 people that sit at my table, officials, 
etc sit at my table every night for 12 years 150 people a night and I have never charged the government that bill I've paid it out of my own salary this is the principle of generosity I would love to have enough wealth to be that generous and I want you to long to have enough wealth that you can be incredibly generous with what God has given you that's what financial freedom looks like it's the greatest life you'll ever live to have enough wealth that you can give away <laughs> cars that you can pay salaries that you can give extravagantly it's the most incredible feeling ever verse number 19 is the principle of reciprocity this is a one-sentence Nehemiah prayer Nehemiah is famous for this. He just prays off a short prayer. Zip, one sentence or two. Here comes one right now. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah is saying reciprocity. I have blessed these people as much as I could. God, would you now bless me as much as you can? God, remember what I have done for these people. Now, let me ask you a tough question. Are you willing to get down on your knees and say, God, you bless me according to my generosity? Are you generous? Maybe God is blessing you according to your generosity right now. It's an eye-opening thing, isn't it? Nehemiah says, I've been incredibly generous. God, bless me with reciprocity. According, you remember what Jesus said in the New Testament, if you give a cup of water in my name, you will not lose your reward reciprocity what you do for others what you do for the mission of God God remembers he never forgets what you do for others here comes the last one we made it it's a principle of stewardship for those of you not raised in church this is a strange word probably for you for those of you raised in church you have mental images already but the word stewardship is a word used in Christian circles that means management that's all it means management stewardship means to take care of something for someone else whether it's financial management or asset management or time management the point is simply this when we call Jesus Lord we are proclaiming that he owns it all now this is most important thing I've said all morning I want to stop right here when we call Jesus Lord we are saying you Lord own it all nothing changes your life like understanding God owns it all I think book one of our discipleship uh, or book zero I think it one or zero has a lesson at book one has a lesson in it God owns it all when you call him Lord when you say I don't know Lord you're saying it's all belongs to you including me and we are just managers of your resources if you see yourself as the owner, then you can do what you want with what's yours. That's the problem. If you see yourself as a manager of all that God owns, it totally changes your outlook on wealth, assets, cars, houses, and uh, material possessions that God has put into your life. 
and you realize that we are his agents and our whole mission here on earth is advancing his kingdom and our lives are to be prioritized around being his manager. You got a lot of principles to think about this morning. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Here's my challenge to you this morning. I want some of you to come and pray over these boxes uh, that are going overseas. That's one thing that's going to happen right now. For all of our young families and young adults in the room, you're early in this and there's plenty of time to get things situated correctly so that you live a lifetime of prosperity and generosity and you can set your whole adult life up on the principle of God first, my family savings next, my bills third. You have a whole lifetime ahead of you to say, God, I'm going to honor you in my wealth. I see myself as a manager, and God, bless me according to my generosity. I'm going to ask you to stand quietly where you are. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Uh, Christians are already at the altars praying. I want you to stand together. It's easier to move about if you need to. We'll have some deacons here on the front row that will pray with you if you need someone to pray with. Remember our sermon last week. Maybe you need to confess some things or pray for healing or pray for jobs or pray for family God said you have not because you ask not come and, and join hands with some Christian leader and let them pray with you this morning if you need that you come and leverage that this morning the church is here for you we are here to help you this morning we're here to bless you in every area of your life but especially in this area of spiritual blessing we're here for you I want you to know that you leverage that avail yourself of that Find peace this morning. Find help. If you're here without Christ this morning, just make your way to the front. And Kim's right here. Just reach out to Kim. Say, Kim, pray with me. Miss Leah's right here. Pray with me. They'll pray a prayer, simple. We call it sinner's prayer to receive Christ as your Savior this morning. While all of these are praying, let me speak to every adult and every young person. Don't you want to be wealthy? There's nothing wrong with that. Why not fall on your knees this morning and say, God, I present myself to you in the house of God this morning. And I'm going to try to live by some of these principles I've heard today about priority and the work ethic and the generosity that we've discussed. Not taking advantage of people, but using my wealth to bless people to advance the mission of God. God, open the windows of heaven and pour that blessing down on my family. Pour that blessing down upon my career. When they say no raises this year, Lord, bless me anyway. When they say we're going to freeze everything, no promotions, except me, God, let me be promoted. God, make a producer. Make me a producer at work. Make me a producer at church. Make me a producer in this community. God, I'm just praying for your people right now. God, this topic touches every one of our lives this morning about how we see ourselves, what our goals about life are, whether we're working to get out of work eventually or working to get so 
satisfied that we never have to work again or do we see ourselves as agents managing all the wealth you pour into our life managing a home and managing assets for the kingdom of God God even our children we realize belong to you and we've given them back to you in dedication and we prayed over them and said Lord whatever your will is for their life Lord, let them make a difference in this world. And God, freshly this morning, we just give our own hearts to you today. God, I pray for this church. By that I mean collectively every family, God. I pray that we would be so blessed by your hand that our hearts would rejoice in a generous God. God, as you pour that wealth down upon us, let us have your heart of generosity and the work ethic of Paul and Peter and Nehemiah, the love and the compassion for hurting like Jesus Christ, the sins of faith like Abraham. God, I pray in a very material way your blessings upon your people this morning. Father, open our eyes where we need to align our lives with principles that you've already outlined that help us be blessed the way you want to bless us. God, even this week as people make efforts maybe to correct some bad fiscal policy in their life or in their family, God, as they make efforts this week, would you bless them in some unexpected way as just a little... I love you, just a word that they're doing the right thing and they can be encouraged. God, for families that are struggling financially because of maybe unexpected health care costs or layoffs due to COVID and God, who knows, all these things that come into our life. God, for those who've been surprised. Because of it, they've been disadvantaged. God, I pray that you would turn their situation around. And Lord, that you would bring financial healing back into their lives. God, our prayer together as a family is that you would bless us all this morning so richly that we could live generous, generous giving lives. This is our prayer for the Cornerstone family. In Jesus' name we pray.